Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we're joined by Dr. James Lang, who's going to talk to us about his new article in the Chronicle of Higher Education entitled, How to Cope with Presentation Anxiety. Welcome to the show, Jim. Thank you. Glad to be here. I am so glad that you're here and that we get to talk about presentation anxiety. I know that I have it, and I'm guessing that most of our listeners have it or have had it. Um, But before we dive into that, will you please tell us about yourself? Okay. Um, I um, was an English professor for 20-plus years at Assumption University in Worcester, Massachusetts, Um, and I got my degree before that at Northwestern University. Um, So that's kind of like the the sort of main track of my academic career, except for the fact that when I was getting my de- uh, graduate degree at Northwestern, um, I became interested in teaching and learning because I took like a part-time job at the Center for Teaching Excellence at Northwestern. And as a result of that, I started doing a little bit of writing about teaching and learning. Um, and then, you know, I left Northwestern, I got my job at Assumption, um, and spent, you know, a dozen years just sort of as a regular uh, English professor. Um, but then I, conti- I continued to write and think about teaching and learning as well. And throughout that, through that, through that, uh, throughout that time period. And so uh, I think in 2013, um, I founded our uh, Center for Teaching Excellence at Assumption. And so for the next eight years or so, I directed that center. And uh, in addition to being uh, my regular duties as an English professor. Um, and so I had written, um, quite a few books about teaching and learning um, uh, between 2005 and 2020, which was when the last one came out. Um, In 2021, I actually decided that I had been, um, I was enjoying the writing as much as or more than I was enjoying actually being a full-time academic. And so I stepped away from full-time teaching in 2021. And now um, I'm kind of like a part-time teacher uh, and a full-time writer. Um, and so that's where things stand right now. Was it a love of books and writing that led you to focus on uh, English as your field of study? <laughs> Absolutely, yes. And uh, my especially, I know I've always been very uh, interested in writing. Um, yeah, my degree actually was in you know British literature, uh, and I still love that. But um, I always loved to write, and so that was the thing in our my um, academic life that brought me the most fulfillment. 
Um, and so that just sort of grew and grew over the you know couple of decades I was as, uh, as a full time academic. Um, and you know, and it's just for me, it's just a, the way I think about it is I just shifted the balance from being um, a full time teacher and a part time writer to being a full time writer and part time teacher. Um, so you know, I, I'm doing the same work. It's just in different, uh, uh, you know, kind of different balance. And what inspired you to write this article about how to cope with presentation anxiety? So as a little bit of backstory here, when I was uh, on the job market in 1999, actually, uh, after I'd finished my degree and was working actually uh, at the Searle Center there at Northwestern, um, I saw a, a call was sent around to the, uh, like our department. Uh, they must have, the Chronicle must have sent out um, this call to different you know, graduate departments across the country. And it just said, we're looking for people to write essays about their experiences on the job market. And so there was, you know, lots and lots of people must have submitted essays and they picked five of us to chronicle our our year looking for jobs. And so I was um, selected as one of those people. And so I wrote, uh, I think, five or six essays that, that process that year, which happily ended in me getting a job. So that was good. Um, and then um, at the, I enjoyed those col- columns a lot. And when it was done, I said I proposed to the Chronicle that maybe I could continue to write essays for the Chronicle about what it was like to be a, a tenure track faculty member. Um, now the Chronicle is filled with those essays now, but this was the very beginning of that time uh, when they started publishing those kinds of essays. So um, they agreed to do that. And then I've had that relationship with the Chronicle now for 22 years, um, writing essentially, you know, a column every month or so about teaching and learning uh, academic life um, for a long time. So that, that's a little bit of background to say that, you know, I, I write, <laughs> I think I've written close to 200 columns for the Chronicle of Higher Education. And there's sort of always stuff that's available for me to write about, which means I can write about anything, essentially, that I experience, you know, as an academic or as a teacher, uh, whatever it might be. And so kind of things that come up for me, you know, in my academic life, I just, yeah, okay, I'd like to think a little bit more about that. And then the way I think about things is write, is to write about them. Um, so I think that I had written that particular essay in the wake of um, I had had been away from speaking for a while, um, and I had I had, had a recent uh, I had a, kind of a big return to speaking at a very large event um, where I was the keynote speaker, and so that these kinds of issues were on my mind uh, when I drafted that column. In the column, uh, you say that. Presentation anxiety is the academic version of stage fright, and I felt that personally. I'm wondering, do you have an early memory of stage fright prior to having to give presentations as an as an academic, or did it hit you out of nowhere the first times you were dealing with it were when your career was really at stake? No, I remember actually as an undergraduate being um, even sort of having a little stage fright just to raise up uh, to speak out in class. Um, and so, you know, this was even before I stood on a straight, a stage and I was the, on the, you know, in the seats, uh, I remember, you know, I would start to feel myself get a little anxious or my heart to start beating a little fast when I was just wanted to, you know, make a point, especially in a larger class. Um, so I definitely had that. Um, and then, you know, having to get up and give a presentation in college, I definitely remember some of those experiences and being very, um, you know, very anxious about those, those moments, 
at the same time, I do remember some of them going very well, which helped me recognize what I'm, what I'm feeling inside might not necessarily um, be what other people are seeing. Uh, so I think that gave me a little sense that, you know, this is something I could do. I don't love to do it at that time, um, but, you know, I, I could make it work um, as long as I, you know, had to kind of, I had to, I had to work my way through the, the kind of nerves um, of those kinds of experiences. Once I started speaking um, as a result of the, some of the books I had written, I started getting invitations to speak to faculty audiences on other campuses and definitely, um yeah, you know, there are definitely some moments for me that stand out, which were really, really uh, anxiety provoking um, and a lot of stage fright uh, went into some, some of those moments. Um, one of them that I write about in the column, which was um, after I had written a book about um, cheating and academic integrity in higher education, I was invited to speak at this uh, conference in Mexico. And there were just a lot of things that. Uh, were kind of like amping up the intensity of that experience. I was on a big stage. There was a, and it was an auditor auditorium filled with people. There was a translator. It was being video recorded. Um, and, you know, they had flown me down there. Um, they were giving me a nice honorarium. <laughs> there was just like everything that would make this experience more uh, anxiety provoking was, was there. Um, and so, you know, I was really, um, really anxious during that the lead up into that presentation. And you say in the article, you were having physical symptoms of this stage fright, sweaty palms, racing heart, thoughts spiraling, spiraling around your brain, fidgety movements. Um, and you said that you were silently pleading to the announcer, please stop talking and just let me get up there and start. Why does that feeling of, almost it's almost your turn amplify stage fright for so many of us yeah that the last moments are the worst i i know you know um one of my mentors as in teaching learning higher education ken bain actually has like a practice or he, he when he um uh, like the the host when he speaks somewhere he says to them there can be no introduction you're the only thing you can say is Ladies and gentlemen, here's Ken Bain. <laughs> and that way he, he doesn't have to sit through this long introduction where he's getting more and more anxious the entire time. I kind of like that idea, but I, I, haven't, not that, I haven't done that myself. Um, but those last few minutes, you know, that's it's both anxiety provoking, but it's also excitement generating. And that's the, I think the, the thing that we have to remember about that. It's just like, you know, at a sporting event, right, um, before the, the whistle blows or, the you know, the kickoff or whatever it might be, um, you need some energy at those moments. And so, you know, you, that, the, that, that feel, those feelings that you're experiencing are, um, they're, they can help you if you can just sort of get your mind around the fact that, um, it, you know, you can use them to kind of push yourself out into the experience um, and sort of start with energy and excitement. Does it help to tell ourselves that this intense feeling we have is temporary? Yeah, for sure. I, I The way I like to think about, it, you know, is I always know, you know, I, I've never had an experience where like, you know, and I've probably given at this point 200 lectures or workshops on other campuses um, about my work at this point. Um, and so, you know, I, I, there's no, I've never not made through it. And ever, I've never not made it through. And so I, at this point, I can say to myself, you know, the first five minutes are going to be a little, uh, you're going to be a little fidgety and anxious, but after that, it's going to be fine. 
Um, and once I get over the first five minutes, um, I know everything's going to be fine. And one of the things I started to do was, um, you know, I would often, I don't like to uh, speak from a script, but I often will script the first few minutes. Um, and one of the ways I like to do that is I start with a joke. Um, and, you know, so like sometimes, like kind of a rehearsed humorous comment, essentially, about the experience of talking about that subject or, um, you know, whatever it might be. Um, my my most popular book called Small Teaching has a, um, a story in it that's kind of like the heart of small teaching. And um, I tell that, I, you know, I have a very <laughs> scripted version of that story, um, which is designed to sort of provoke a little bit of laughter, which usually does. And while people are laughing, I get a little moment to kind of pause and, you know, say, okay, that went fine. Now I'll kind of launch into the the, uh, the the heart of the presentation. You tell us in the article that the advice you're going to give is from your own experience and having experimented with different approaches. Um, do you mind sharing some bad advice or some things that really didn't work for you before we launch into what does work? Yeah, I mean, not, not so much bad advice, but stuff that I just didn't I mean, which I still sometimes do some of this kind of thing. Like, for example, I like to remind myself that nobody in the audience um, wants you to, nobody wants to see you fail, right? There's nothing worse than being in the audience and you're watching someone up the stage and you realize this is not going well, <laughs> right? Like that's a terrible feeling for the audience as well. And so like everybody is kind of cheering for you from the audience and hoping that you're going to do a good job. Um, now, on the, on the one hand, that's like a helpful Thing to think about because sometimes the thing that provokes your anxiety is that you everyone's judging you and you know going to criticize what you have to say and there are sometimes people that are like that but for the most part people are, are sort of cheering for you um on the other hand that can be a little bit of that can produce a little bit of anxiety because you're like okay well that means i really have to do a good job so they don't you know i don't want to disappoint them or something like that so you know that good advice for me it kind of cuts uh, a little bit of it cuts both ways um, so, but I, I do try to think about that. Sometimes I try to remind myself that again, that like, you know, I've done this before, um, and I can do it again. Um, sometimes I actually will, you know, uh, I have a, if, if I'm sitting at a table or something while they're introducing me, I might actually put some, like remind myself a few things like in my notebook before I stand up and, and take the stage. Um, you know, I just sort of tell your, like other things, that I've done in the past, especially like there was a period when I was definitely feeling more anxious about presentations. Um, I would put like a, like a little piece of paper on the podium, which said like breathe or something like that. And it was fine. Like those things are not bad to do. Um, but they, they weren't, they weren't as effective as some of the other things I've learned to do instead. And you, you take us through some of the, um, approaches, um, but it occurs to me what you just said is to think of a community feeling. The people who are there want you to do well. They want to hear what you have to say. And you also want to do well and to remember what you came there to say. To sort of take it out of the I'm standing up here all alone to we're, we're in a lot of ways all in this together. Right. And, and the other thing to remind, uh, that's absolutely. And um, I want the, you know, and one thing that actually really helps me, especially if you're speaking to an audience that you don't really know, is if you can, you have any opportunity to talk to people before the, just the talk, just so you can have a friendly face or two um, that you can see while you're speaking. So actually just uh, 
a couple of weeks ago, I gave the keynote at a conference, um, uh, a teaching and learning conference. And again, I was on a big stage. There was a big auditorium. Um, and, you know, this was a lot of people in the community that I, that I typically write to. Um, and so it was, it was definitely kind of a high stress moment. But in that case, I went to the auditorium about 15 minutes before this keynote was uh, supposed to start. There was almost nobody in there. There were, but there were a few few people that were just sort of scattered around the seats. And I was kind of one thing I like to do is I like to walk around the, the space before I speak, just so I can kind of get a sense of how large it is and what the sound will be like, and from different parts of the room. And um, and I stopped and talked to a couple of those people, just like again, like sort of jokey chit chat. Um, but that really helps me to see. Okay, now there's a couple of people out here. And in, in, invariably, they're going to be friendly. And, you know, they're they're happy to talk to the keynote speaker, um, and so that again, like, helps me feel a little bit more like it's it's a friendly crowd. They want us. They want me to succeed, um, and so all that kind of stuff that definitely helps tamp down some of the anxiety. The other thing that relates to what you were just saying too is that um, you know it's worth remembering that it's really not people are there because they want to get something helpful from you, and so they're not just there to. Um, again, to like judge you and criticize you, they're hoping that they're going to learn something new. And so if you're, if you, no matter, don't worry about like the, um, I try to say to myself, don't worry about if you stumble your words over your words a little bit, because if, if you have something good to say, like in my case, I know that what people come to my talks for, because they want to get specific ideas for that they can use in their classrooms tomorrow. And so I've learned that, you know, I've got to, if, if I have a, give a talk that has at least five or 10 of those specific recommendations in it, people are going to be happy. It doesn't matter if I didn't have like a perfectly scripted opening or closing or, you know, if, or if I stumbled over my words, they don't care about that. If, if they gave, if they get something good from the talk, they're going to be happy about it. And so again, I try to remind myself of that as well. It sounds like one of the strategies you're using to deal with uh, presentation anxiety is to imagine what the audience wants and to affirm for yourself that you're able to give that to them. That's very well put. Yes. Um, you offer us three strategies in the article, and one is to build a pause into the initial minutes of a presentation so that you, as the presenter, can stop and catch your breath. And you want people to know that it's helpful if this pause can be a little bit longer than sort of the breath you might take between sentences, but something more substantive, like 15 seconds, 30 seconds, to really give yourself that pause. What does that do for you physiologically? Yeah, it really definitely, I in those moments, it really gives you uh, the opportunity to catch your breath literally like, um, but also to, like be a little bit more um, mindful about your breathing, actually, because, you know, when you come out, you're, you know, as you're speaking fast and you, um, you know, there's all kind of like a, this, you know, stuff, relation, the relationship between your sort of breathing um, rhythm and, you know, and anxiety and, um, and stress. And so, you know, I've done a, I've done a little bit of um, work on mindfulness, for example, uh, in which you kind of learn breathing techniques that can help. Um, reduce your anxiety. Um, and so if you have those, you know, 15 or 30 seconds, you can take three really good, uh, deep breaths into your diaphragm. And that absolutely, I mean, you could just do, anyone could do it right now, take three or four or five breaths, slow breaths into your diaphragm and then blow them out slowly. And you can just feel your body relax. Um, so you just need a little time to do that. 
Um, as I was saying early, it can even be short as short as like, you know, if I tell a joke and I just wait for the laughter to subside, that's enough time to get a few breaths in um, that can calm your nerves a little bit. There's something really um, positive for all of us to hear laughter too. It strikes me that if someone starts with an opening joke that is the kind of joke that's at no one's expense, um, then there's a nice release of everyone's tension. People were worried about parking or traffic on the way there. You were, you know, backstage waiting for your turn, feeling stressed. And there's just sort of this positive sound of laughter and this communal release of whatever stress we all had the minute before this thing started. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, too, I think people at that moment, they're like, okay, this is going to be like uh, an engaging experience, right? A person who comes out and, and is able to, and I always, I always poke, you know, the, the jokes always are on me, right? That's the way to do that. Um, and so everyone is like, okay, this is a person who's not going to be too sort of, you know, just sort of lecturing us about his expertise. There's going to be more of a, an engagement, engaging experience here. Um, and I think that also helps um, feeling that, you know, the, that gets you the, the audience on your side. And once you know that that's happened, again, that reduces your nerves. One of the ways that you offer to get the pause in the beginning is to give the audience something to view, think about, or discuss. Um, and so you take us through in the article those three techniques. Um, can you talk to us about giving the audience something to view? You tell us um, some tips for how to handle the viewing that are, are probably ones that people don't have. Yeah, so I mean, what I would try to do there is, uh, for example, uh, uh, I had a, um, when I was uh, working on uh, my presentations for a book that I had written about attention and distraction, um, I saw another pres presenter actually, you know, show an image, which I've seen before, of, you know, like a 13th century um, classroom, you know, in which someone is standing at a podium, and then the students are kind of like in the seats, and they're all, like, some of them are sleeping, they're talking to each other, right? So this is like a, a, an image of sort of, um, you know, a distracted classroom 800 years before, you know, smartphones were invented. Um, and I think this, that presenter kind of put it up and just asked us to, to look at it and, and sort of, you know, notice what we're seeing there. Um, and so this was at the very beginning of the talk. And, you know, he paused for, you know, I don't know, maybe 15 or 30 seconds and just said, okay, tell me what you see here. And there was a, there was a definitely a pause when people, a few people then he asked to, you know, volunteer what they were seeing. Um, and so that was that was just enough um, and uh, to, you know, create that opportunity, not only for him to respond to, to relax, but also um, to create a little bit of engagement. And so, again, so that that sends the signal. This is not going to be 50 minutes of un uninterrupted lecturing. Um, and so I, I learned from that experience that, you know, that's one of the things that you can do. It's something I often do in the classroom as well. Um, and, you know, and th there I don't really need the the sort of relaxation time, but I do like the idea of having people really stop and actually looking at something um, and trying to think about it and uh, you know n report what they're seeing. Um, you know, you, there's research actually on when people go to art museums, for example, that people spend about seven seconds looking for a, looking at a, a painting. Right, these are like the great you know works of, of like you know world art, and people spend seven seconds looking for them. So we don't have a really good habit of like actually looking at things very well. So um, I like the idea of doing that, 
as a way to sort of draw people into the experience. I really appreciated that part of the article because um, I, I know a lot of grad students have to have slides as part of their, their dissertation defense or presentations they have to make along the way. And a lot of professors use PowerPoint fairly heavily in their work. And there's this um, pressure to just start narrating the slides immediately. Right. And you're asking us to flip that script. Yeah. And the other thing that you can do, this was actually something else I realized while I was, when I, when I did show images in my presentations, which I don't, I have images on my slides, but oftentimes, you know, at this point, my, like my current work, I don't really, you know, highlight images too much, but there were some previous presentations I have done. And the other thing I really liked about that was even if I didn't ask the uh, audience to pause, what I would, what that does is it pushes the audience's um, attention to the image, which means they're taking it off of you. <laughs> and that is actually a really helpful thing too, because if I go over to the image on the, uh, I have access to like, you know, point at the, the, the slide essentially, the, the presentation screen. Now I'm starting directing the attention away from, you know, um, the, like, again, like my kind of careful, carefully, you know, um, constructed script or like what I'm actually doing with my face or my hands or something like that. I'm saying, no, look here, this is what matters. Don't look at me. Right. And that is part of the issue that, that causes uh, presentation anxiety is the sense that everyone's looking at you. And so when you can just deflect their, um, their viewing to the image, that is also like just sort of a helpful thing to do uh, for the speaker. And, Zoom and the like has sort of compounded that for us because we have the feeling that they're all looking at us and we're looking at us. Right. Right. That's true. And actually, I, you know, definitely one of the things I don't like is sometimes I've been in, in, in situations where like I can see a screen of me myself, you know, in the room, like in the back at the room or something. Uh, I don't like that. <laughs> right. I don't just I want to I'm going to do my thing up here. I don't want to see it, though. I often get through my presentation anxiety by getting lost in the material and the topic and my passion for it. Yeah. And one of the hard things about doing Zoom webinars is I can't get away from the fact that I'm back in it because I'm staring back at me at the screen. <laughs> right. um, and I want to get um, engaged in my own passion for why I'm there. Yeah, that's actually inter that's an interesting. And the other thing I've noticed about giving the Zoom presentations is um, – if I'm doing a presentation where the screen, you know, is I'm just like, a little, if there's like a, you know, a box to the right of the presentation, I'm mostly looking at the slides. Um, but one thing that is really helpful to me, if there's, if I can see just one person who has left their camera on, now that means I can talk to somebody else instead of myself or just not, I don't actually like to just talk to the screen with nothing, no people on it. I prefer to be able to have one person who can have their camera on. So I know sometimes, you know, if you're just watching a presentation, um, you might turn your camera off and that's completely understandable. But sometimes I would like to say to my host, look, can you just leave your hand camera on just so I can talk to you and see like another human? Um, and, and again, it's, it's a version of doing what you're um, when you're giving a talk to an actual audience in a physical room and you just sort of focusing on one person at a time when you're actually talking. Um, and that helps you feel a little bit more like this is a conversation instead of, you know, a high stress presentation. It can also help you gauge how it's being received. Definitely. Definitely. 
Yeah. Sometimes I've had, sometimes <laughs> there has been a couple of times when someone left their camera on and I could see they were doing, doing something else or they were yawning or something like that. I didn't want to see that for sure. <laughs> sometimes we can just see that we're maybe going too fast for the audience Yeah. or they're a little less engaged than we would want. And we're thinking, oh, I wonder if it would help if I added in this piece that I hadn't planned to, to sort of platform this knowledge. And when you do that, then you find that they're back in there with you. Yeah, definitely. Yes. And that's true of the audience in the room too. I can definitely feel any, you know, any experienced teacher or present presenter can feel when the energy starts to drain away from the room. Uh, and so, you know, you, you have to think about having some things you can do in those moments to try to like regain their attention and, uh, you know, re-up that energy. You say in the article, part of what provokes anxiety about a high-stakes presentation is envisioning that you will have to be speaking for the next 30 to 40 minutes. That is a hard way to look at it when you're taking it all as a gulp. Right, right. And so for me, um, and I, that, this is something I still do now, but I do it for different reasons now. Again, because I, you know, my at this point, I've given so many presentations that um, my, my presentation anxiety is... It's pretty small at this point, but at the same time, I don't like to speak more for more than 20 minutes um, before I ask the audience to do something. And really, I'm just thinking about here what we know about attention, right? Attention fatigues. So if you have people sitting in a seat in like a darkened room or whatever it might be and you're, you know, for example, like I'm giving a keynote um, and they have their de devices that are available to them. Uh, and they're maybe at a conference and, you know, they have them, you know, they're sleeping in a hotel room and, you know, being very social um, the entire time. Right. This thing that kind of makes people tired and fatigued. So just expect them to just sort of, you know, listen to someone talking for 50 minutes is just a, that's a that's a big ask. So for me, um, my current sort of most of the presentations I'm giving right now are about this book called Distracted, Why Students Can't Focus and What You Can Do About It. And for that book, I did a lot of research on, you know, how what um, cultivate cultivates and supports attention in the classroom, but in our lives as well. And, you know, so as a result of that, when I give like a, an hour long presentation on this material, you know, I speak for about 20 minutes. Then I give a discussion question. I ask people to just, you know, quickly to turn to one person next to them, talk, talk about it for two minutes. I ask a few people to share their responses and then the next presentation, part of the presentation starts another 20 minutes. Um, and during, you know, at the beginning of those 20 minutes, you know, the energy has definitely returned to the room. And so, you know, we want to just think about the fact, how much can you push the limits of your audience's attention? Um, so, you know, I have to, under, you know, I know that, you know, there might be uh, graduate students, uh, you know, listening to this and, you know, you, you, you maybe can't, some of this stuff you can't maybe really apply to all kind of experiences which you might giving presentations um, in which you can't do sort of like, uh, you know, think pair shares halfway through or something like that. But still, the way to think about is if you can't do that is like, can there be some kind of change? Like, a, a, you know, we're shifting from just sort of talking about this to moving to this or showing an image or um, something that, that gives you the opportunity both you and your audience to just sort of rest and renew their attention for even for just a few seconds. Um, the research suggests that that, that helps people um, to, to stay focused for longer periods of time. I'm curious for the students who are distracted is what 
creates distraction that we're expecting them to sit still for too long, absorbing a lot of dense information. Absolutely. That's a huge part of it. Um, you know, because our attention has limits. Um, um, one of the people whose work I cite in the book, Michelle Miller says, you know, we need to think about attention as a precious limited resource. And so those of us who are teachers have to think about the fact that we are stewards of that limited resource. So we want to think about, you know, are we being good stewards of the attention of students in our classrooms? Um, and that, that same thing is true for those of us who are giving presentations. How am I helping and supporting the attention of my audience? Um, you know, and, and not expecting them to just sort of sit there wrapped and enthralled by my speaking for, for 50 minutes. Uh, I think that's an unrealistic expectation. Um, and which is why like TED Talks are so short, right? They're t 10, 12, 20 minutes at most um, because those talks, uh, you know, the, the sort of that format uh, recognizes the limits of, of our attention. The podcast format allows listeners to engage in an activity while yeah. they're learning. They're on the bus right. or walking the dog or setting out all the things they're going to be using to make supper. Um, and so they're naturally engaged in an activity while they're learning. But for when you're giving a presentation to a room full of people, you mentioned a minute ago the, the uh, technique of using think, pair, shares. Can you explain for our listeners what that technique is? Yeah, I mean, that is like one of the most common things you can do to promote active learning um, in any kind of, you know, teaching experience in teaching setting, um, which is just to say, you know, I'm going to, so, you know, so um, in my, I'll give you the, the way I you would use it in my current presentations, which is, which are on like how we can, you know, support student attention in the classroom. Um, I typically will invite people to think about the fact that the issue really is not distraction. The issue is how do you support attention? And when you try to sort of turn your head toward that more productive way of thinking about the problem, the first thing you should do is think about, okay, when are the moments in my classroom when students really are attentive? Like when are those times in, in a class period when students are, are like locked in and actually paying you know, attention, kind of zoned into the, the, the learning experience? And when you think about that, you can then start to think about, okay, how can I, what's happening in those moments and how can I maximize that ex those experiences for students. Well, okay, so in my presentation, I, there's about 20 minutes of sort of introductory theory, a little bit of history, background, biology, distraction, all that stuff. Then I explain this sort of, you know, approach to the issue. And it's okay, now I want you to think about this in your own classroom. When are those mom moments when students are most paying attention? And then I say, I, I put the screen up. Okay, I want you to think about this. I, you know, kind of talk them through the question. And then I say, okay, now, um, now that you've thought about it, turn to a neighbor and tell that neighbor what you what you came up with. Um, and I give them actually two minutes. I actually put a, I set the timer on my phone um, to give them exactly two minutes. And then I will invite a few people to tell me what they came up with. Um, this was something I actually did while I was working on the book. Um, and I had been invited to give some presentations because people were knew, knew that I was working on this issue. And I had written some columns in the Chronicle of Higher Education about it. Um, and so... Uh, when I started doing this, I got some really good ideas for people uh, that, you know, helped me that then went into the book. Um, so, yeah, so that I think pair share is just, you know, it all has to, and then this whole this whole process, posing the question, get, getting them to think, talk to a peer and me getting a few responses takes five minutes. Um, and that's what's great about think pair share is 
you can sort of contract it or expand it you know, to fill whatever time you have available to you. It can be a, a two minute thing in the class. It can be it can be a 20 minute thing. Um, so it's, it's a very flexible strategy that you can use in almost te- in almost any teaching situation. And being aware of what can make our audience distracted can reduce our anxiety in giving the presentation. Because if we're looking at the group and they look bored or they're shuffling restlessly in their seat, we're starting to get this dread that either they don't care or this isn't going well. And so if we realize they do care, that's why they're there. And it's not going well because we've pushed people past how they can sit and listen then using these techniques can get everybody back engaged. Yeah, I really believe that you have to think about the um, attention of your audience, whether that's students or the people in a, you know, a, a present and the in a, people in a presentation, the audience. Um, you have to think about how you're supporting their attention throughout, and that means in a presentation. Let's say you you have no opportunity to do that. You still want to think about how you're going to mix up your, you know, the things that you're going to talk about or the things that you're going to show them on the slides. So, you know, this is sort of, you know, presentation 101. You don't want to show 20 slides, which all are sort of, you know, filled with text, you know, which are just kind of walking through ideas or something like that. You need to have things which, you know, uh, um, require them to think a little bit differently and to do something with their brain. If they can't do something different with, you know, actually speaking or getting up their seat, getting up out their seats or whatever, but varying the kind of experience that you're going to give to them. And so, you know, that is a huge thing for attention is a variety and change. Um, our attention is renewed by variety and change, but if you're giving the same kind of experience throughout the entire time, you're de- people are going to, are going to, are going to drift away. And no matter how good ma- the material is, that's just going to happen because um, we just don't have the capacity to, to, you know, stay focused for that long um, and, and again, like we have no, when we have no opportunity to get up, to move, um, to speak, all that kind of thing. You talk about the value of really thinking ahead of time what the discussion question is going to be and having one that people really engage with. And you gave an example of um, Ken Bain, who is the author of a book called What the Best College Teachers Do, and that You've been in the auditorium when he's been the speaker and he'll mosey up to the front of the room, pause and ask us a question. And the question is, I want you to think about the last time you learned something deeply. What inspired you to do that and how did you go about it? Um, that is really a thought provoking question. Absolutely. And, I, you know, I, I always every time I do it, I was sometimes because well, I probably in the I've sat in that audience multiple times and every time I usually will come up with something different. Um, and that's, you know, it's a great question because, you know, we've all had deep learning experiences. Um, and what's, what's so great about that question is it, it requires you to, to draw from your own experiences, but then to start to thinking about it. And you realize that you're in a, you're in a presentation, which is about teaching and learning, which you, you mean, you realize that, okay, this is going to lead where now to like, it's going to, it's going to lead me to this kind of space in which he's going to help me do something with that. Um, and I really, and I, actually, I, even as you're kind of reminding me about this, this is, that's obviously I was doing the same thing with my like distraction question, right. Or attention question. I want people to think about something in relationship to their own lives and then use it to kind of, I'm kind of setting them up for the half, the second half of the presentation. Um, and Ken is doing the same thing there. And, 
you know, Ken also does this. And the one reason that I wrote about that and experience too, was that the fact that, you know, there's almost no lead in um, for him. It, it, this Posing that question takes like a minute. Um, and, you know, again, people are kind of coming to the room and you're probably expecting the, you know, and Ken's very well known in this world. Um, so you're expecting to hear something from this, you know, esteemed figure. And then immediately you're talking instead of listening to Ken. Uh, and so I just, you know, that was very inspiring to me uh, as, as to help people to me realize for help to help me realize that um, I don't ha- always have to sort of jump in and just start amazing, like allowing people with my presentation skills. It's not about that. It's like help you're try, you're there to help people, people think and learn something new. It's a very renewing question too, as we we're sitting here, I'm thinking, cause it says, I want you to think about the last time you learned something deeply. And so even if you've heard that question before, your answer is naturally going to be different. The last time you learned something deeply when you were asked the question before might be archival work that you did for the book you just finished. And this time it's how to fold cloth diapers (laughs) and figure out the best um, sourcing for that in your area. And you can go on for 20 minutes on this topic and that's you cutting it short (laughs) because you learned deeply about everything to do with cloth diapers. Um, And so since it's the last time you learned something deeply, it really encourages us to keep thinking of ourselves as lifelong learners and to be excited about the last thing that we learned, even if it's not something we ever thought we wanted to learn or would learn. Yeah, that's a great point because it helps us. You're right. It helps us kind of uh, remind ourselves that. And I actually, even as you're explaining that, I think the other thing he's doing there, he's reminding you, you can keep learning as a teacher as well. Um, And so that's he's kind of setting us up to uh, to be in the right frame of mind for him to start challenging us, uh, which he does, you know, during the presentation you know, that we need to think differently about what we do as teachers. Um, And so, yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on in that question. (laughs) And then the second step of that is after people have had a few minutes to think about it or a few seconds to think about it, they turn to someone near them and share. And so there's this sense of, Um, what we were talking about earlier about the audience as community, they're now telling each other something that they learned deeply and they're probably going to surprise each other with what they share, even though they thought they all came sort of as the same sort of person, they're going to find out, Oh, we all have these different things that we're learning deeply right now. Yeah. And actually it's not only for the audience, but also for the speaker. So what I've experienced from this is so people will say things that I just think are like, I would never have thought about um, as, and so that is, and that, that helps make it a great ex- intellectual experience for me. Um, Cause oftentimes people will say something, I think, Oh, you know what? That relates to something I, I wasn't going to talk. I wasn't going to talk about, but I think it's actually a really good point. Um, and so it kind of gets me out of like my script at this point, you know, this, uh, because of, a lot of my presentations come from like two books or three books, the last three books I've done. Um, And I've I've had to do them multiple times. So I don't script them, but at this point I've just given them so many times, you know, if you probably watched me give these presentations at two different times, they're going to look very similar, but the part, so, you know, that can be not always the most uh, intellectually charged experience for me, except for the part when I ask people to sort of give me their, you know, their responses to my question and there anything can happen. And so that makes it a, a more enjoyable experience for me. And it gets me, as you were saying earlier, when you get lost in the material, well, there now I'm being sort of, you know, challenged in an interesting way. 
And that makes it more of a kind of, um, it reminds me of what I find interesting about this stuff, having to think through what people are saying and relate it back to the subject. So um, th those moments are, are great for the audience, but they're also good for the speaker too. And they bring the audience into feeling like they have value as well. Instead of just sitting being a receptacle, they are actually people who have valuable things to share as well. Absolutely. There's collective wisdom in the room. And I always try to remember that too. Um, you know, people in people in this audience um, have things that they, they know how to do, which I don't even, which I never would have thought about. Um, and so it's, it's, you know, and I, I try to affirm that when people give their responses. Um, and of course that works for students as well, right. Um, to help students surface the, the, the good things they already know about, uh, they've experienced and that can be helpful to the conversation. So, um, you know, this is kind of like, uh, an asset based, uh, approach to education or presentations, uh, to recognize their assets already in the room. It's not just a, like a deficit, uh, filling, um, experience for me to, to talk to the audience. Um, I, I need to be able to recognize and, and affirm the assets that are already in the room. It's also interesting about question framing to think about what invites someone to engage and what shuts them down. Um, I know one thing I went to that the, it was supposed to be this type of engagement thing, and we were all supposed to share about where we were when 9-11 happened. <laughs> And I just wanted to get out of that space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but immediately I had visual images of what I was watching on TV and the terror that some people I knew who were waiting to hear from loved ones was feeling. And I, it, it was, for me, it was a shutting down question. Yeah, I definitely, I'm not, um, I'm, I don't, I don't, I, I have no problem with like people doing like icebreakers that focus on sort of more personal stuff. I, I understand why people do that. I don't love those myself to be in the audience when that experience happens. And so I always make my questions sort of intellectual ones. Even if you're drawing a little bit from your personal experience, it's more like I want you to, to talk about, I want you to talk to a neighbor. I want to feel like a community here, but we're going to focus still on the subject matter. Um, and I, I, I am, I am always worried about like those questions. I always think about essentially the, the person like me in the audience who kind of rolls their eyes or is not um, engaged by that question because um, they're just not interested in that. Um, and I, again, I have no problem people doing that kind of stuff. I, so, you know, there's a lot of creative ways people to, to invite people into a community and a classroom, an audience, whatever it might be. Um, it's just, it doesn't, it doesn't work for me. Um, and I definitely want to keep my questions focused on like, you know, the, the kind of um, foc focused on the topic, uh, even if I'm going to draw a little bit from their personal experiences, still, it's going to be very directed toward the topic. You were running a center for teaching and learning, and prior to that, you were working in one. Um, what was some direct advice you gave to students that might be sort of universally applicable about how you were encouraging them to deal with their presentation anxiety. Rehearsing. <laughs> that was the main thing I would always try to work with students. But I always use this, do this with faculty as well, which is to uh, remind them that, you know, the students are going to typically what students will do is they'll, they'll work with each other. They're, they're going to divide up the presentation parts um, and they're going to just sort of do it on their own. They might come together once and they'll kind of just talk through the presentation, but you know, that just, that's not the level of preparation they really need. Um, so first of all, you know, you should absolutely, uh, you know, recommend to students, encourage them, 
uh, almost require them to give the, rehearse their presentations because we all know the first time you do it, it just doesn't go the way you want it to do. Uh, you know that the the, um, the timing is going to be off. Uh, you're going to re- recognize you're saying something. You're like, oh wait a minute, that I you know that I realize that's revealing a gap in, in, in our research. Um, you know, just things are going to come up. So what I actually did, I do with my students is um, when when they have to give a presentation, um, I set a class period aside for rehearsals. Now, everybody doesn't do like a rehearsal, a full rehearsal. Everyone does two minutes. And what I people sort of what I've student, what I've recognized is that if students get up and have to do their first two minutes of their presentation, that shows them you need to go and actually rehearse this thing. Um, because the two first two minutes, uh, you, you're going to see, are you really, are you ready? Um, how long is this actually going to take? So, you know, this is really something I would, I have really focused on fact, um, give the opportunity to do a little bit of, and also to just be in the room, right? It's different to give a presentation to like your friend in your dorm room, but to actually be in the room and get two minutes to rehearse. Um, it makes a huge difference in the quality of the presentations you will see. Um, and so the students, you know, I can sort of, I mean, I, I encourage them to rehearse, to get together. Um, maybe there would be a, a way to sort of, I don't know, um, require that as part of the 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 sign of the assignment but i just think the students would be helped by faculty members who recognize the value of that we only have a few minutes left so i want to ask you what do you hope listeners will take away um i guess you know a couple things first again like presentation anxiety can be your friend um, and I, I will tell you a little bit something about this that um, like kind of a personal take on this. Um, I had last year in, um, I mean, presentation, of course, I don't want to minimize the fact that it sometimes be uncomfortable and you wish you didn't have it. At the same time, presentation anxiety does give you some energy and excitement at the beginning of a presentation. Uh, and so I realized this, the value of this recently when I um, gave my first presentation uh, in, a, in a while because, and the reason was that for that was because um, I had been very sick at the last, uh, in 2021, with some something called myocarditis, which is inflammation of the heart muscle. It's a long story, but the short version is um, this myocarditis actually destroyed my heart um, and I had to get a heart transplant um, in December of 2021. Now, when you get a heart transplant, and, and I'm fine, by the way, everything went fine, but when you get a heart transplant, they cut the vagus nerve, which is the nerve that comes from your brain into your heart and it controls your, your heart rhythm. Um, and so something else takes over, over a, your uh, heart rhythm in your body. There's another way that your, your body can do this. But as a result of that, you don't get like those feeling, those, um, that feeling of um, like intense anxiety, that kind of um, flight or fright anxiety that you that you would get normally. So I actually don't get that anymore. So the first time I gave to stand up in front of this presentation, it was like a very large room, 500 people. I was the keynote and I was waiting for the presentation anxiety and it just didn't come. And I realized, uh oh, you know, this is something I now actually have to sort of man- manufacture this that sense of excitement and, and energy that I would normally have gotten. I would have gotten from my like vagus nerve making my heart beat fast. Um, and so, you know, and now it's, I've given presentations since then, and I'm realizing 
I, I really have to work hard actually to get myself excited at the beginning of a presentation in a way that I didn't have to do that before. Um, and you know, it's fine. Again, there's like, there's goods and bads to, to both these <laughs> different ways to, um, to be a presenter, but, um, it, it, it definitely reminds me, you know, you can, you, if you can channel those nerves, um, in the right way, um, they're going to help you give you energy that, that will help, um, launch the presentation well. So that's the first thing. Just remember that, you know, the, those nerves can be a gift. <laughs> that gift has been taken away from me. Um, other things can have kind of, you know, I can I'd still find other ways to, to, um, to get that excitement going, but I have to be more deliberate about it. So, so, you know, welcome that gift as well. And then the other thing is, again, um, think about the fact that you, the, the second thing I would say is um, as a reminder, um, people want you to do well and they're, you're, they're looking to get something from your presentation. So they're not so, they don't, they don't care so much about having it like it be a perfectly um, scripted experience. Um, if you have good content, if you have things that you, you know, are going to give uh, the audience to take away, um, there's a lot of, there's a lots of ways to make that happen. And that can be including things like pausing, changing up what you're doing, think pair shares, all these things are going to contribute to the learning experience of the audience. And, and that's, that's the way to think about it. They're there to learn something from you. Um, and so think about it like as a teacher, um, how you help your students learn and that you can use all these things we've talked about today, pauses, um, changes of format, um, discussion moments, all these things can help create that experience. Um, so the audience is, is going to get something away from it, even if you don't give a perfectly polished presentation. I'm so glad that you're doing well and that you're here today and sharing this with us. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and we've been talking to Dr. Lang about how to deal with presentation anxiety. This is The Academic Life on New Books Network, and I hope you will please join us again.